0: Hey, hey, thank you so much. It's been a great day. I've so enjoyed being with y'all. And I just want to say, and I know I speak for Michael and Emily as well, that um, we just love our church family so, so much. Uh, The Faith Covenant Church family is the most generous, kind, gracious and loving church family that I've ever been a part of. And I just want to say thank you so much. It is a privilege every day to get up and go out and be the pastor of Faith Covenant Church. And uh, it is just tremendous. And so I just want to say thank you very, very much um, just for honoring Michael and Emily, but also me and just remembering us uh, during pastor appreciation. Your appreciation means a lot. It really does. More than you know, because we have such respect for you, the church family. So thank Thank you for that really, really, really grateful. And so on that note, hey, we're in this new series. It's called A Vision of Generosity. And I want you to think about this with me today. We're going to go kind of fast, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. But one of the three things that we seem to care about most in our lives, it's our time, it's our energy, and our money. What we try to do is we try to accumulate as much of those things as we can, and we try to protect those things and defend those things from the outside world. And we're really told that the key in life is to get as much of these three things as you possibly can more of your own time uh, save your energy for yourself and get as much money as you possibly can accumulate all that and hold on to it and I want to ask you to think about this with me what if we're kind of getting it backwards What if we're kind of doing life in reverse? Because it does seem like so many people, so miserable, so unhappy right now. And you wonder, are we just kind of getting it backwards? You know, for instance, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, and he said this, my life is being poured out, all right? And I'm doing it in service to God. And he said, but I do this with my joy is overflowing in the process. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? I mean, I'm pouring out my life. I'm giving it away. And yet I'm filled with joy. And so I want to talk to you today about a couple of events in the Bible that illustrate a very powerful principle of life. Our title today is All In. And we're really talking about the power of full engagement. Now, I have a boy, his name is Benjamin. And uh, he's about 26 now. But when he was about 10 years old, his older cousin, Cody, asked him to come over and spend the night. He was really juiced about this. He had never really like hung out with his older cousin like this, and, and uh, I knew they were going to have a great time. I went to pick him up the next morning, and I bring him home, and we're having breakfast, and his little sisters are there at the table, and Ben is just mean, and he's just surly, right? And uh, he really wasn't himself. He was getting mad at me and his mother, and he was just being uh, critical of us, and I asked him, I said... I said, Ben, did you not ever go to sleep last night? And he went, no. And he started crying. He just burst into tears, you know. He's kind of like a Dallas Cowboys fan. You're like really angry one minute and crying the next, you know. And it was just terrible. It was just awful. And so I literally went over there and just scooped him up out of his chair and carried him back to the bedroom and laid him on his bed. And boom, he went out like that. He hadn't slept in over 24 hours. And when you're a 10-year-old in a 10-year-old body, you really can't do that. And I want you to think about this with me for a moment. You know, so many people today are struggling so much Mentally and emotionally, everyone's talking about this and everyone's asking, why, why, why? Well, there are lots of factors, but America today is experiencing skyrocketing uh, rates of depression, suicide, anxiety, mental health crises. And what's particularly concerning is how it's affecting our younger people, our adolescents, our teens and their 20s. And their unprecedented levels of emotional turmoil are affecting uh, marriages, homes, families, schools, even our politics. And I want you to think about this for me today. Everything we do, interacting with our families, working with our colleagues, competing with our teammates, making decisions, completing assignments, being creative, being positive, doing our job. Every one of our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, they all go back to one thing. It's Energy. Energy. If we don't have the right reserves of energy available, everything we try to do is going to be compromised. Your performance, your health, your success, your emotional strength, all those things are grounded in the management of this precious resource called energy. In fact, your personal energy reserves are your most precious resource. You cannot take for granted that you just have a limitless supply of energy available to you. Now, when I was younger, absolutely, I kind of thought that and kind of lived that way. But I want you to see this. There are two cycles in your life. All right. Number one is depletion. That's when you're spending more energy than you're gaining. And the other one is recovery, when you're gaining more energy energy than you're spending. Those are the only two options that you and I have. And we live our lives, if we live our lives in depletion mode, week after week, month after month, something is going to happen. We're going to break down. We're going to burn out. We're going to get sick. We're going to lose passion. And probably like Benjamin, we're going to collapse. We're going to get to that point. And so we have to make choices in life. Even the Bible talks about this, about managing our energy supply. It's our responsibility to manage it well. I'm ask you to go to 1 Kings in your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 18. An incredible story. A prophet, a man who speaks for God. A prophet is a man who speaks for God. And his name is Elijah, uh, the prophet Elijah. <clears throat> now, at this time in history, we're in the nation of Israel. And uh, so amazing we have guys here that are not too far away. Their homeland is not too far away from where this story takes place. But the nation of Israel at this point in history has a cruel and corrupt leader. It's a king. His name is Ahab. And a huge part of Ahab's power came from this corrupt, false religion that he had put together and brought to the people in this nation of Israel at this time. It was the worship of a God named Baal. This is where we find the prophet in our story, because this prophet, this one prophet of God had challenged all the prophets of Baal to a contest. And I want you to look at verse 21. It says that he went before the people and he said this, how long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long are you going to waver between Baal and God? If Baal is God, then follow him. Absolutely. Be a man or woman of integrity. If that's where truth is, if that's where life is, if that's where joy is, that's where strength is, then yeah, follow that. But if God is God, Then you have, as a man or woman of integrity, you have to make that choice. Follow God. And Elijah said, Here's what we're going to do we have a contest. I'm going to pray. We're all going to pray to bring fire, for our God to bring fire from heaven. Whichever of the gods can bring fire from heaven, then the people, you should follow that God. That's a great display of power, isn't it? 850. 850. Of the prophets of Baal began praying. This was in the morning. And they prayed all day. They danced. Uh, they shouted. They prayed. They did all these things. They even began, they even resorted to cutting themselves, spilling their own blood, begging their God, Baal, to bring fire from heaven. Elijah finally said, about mid afternoon, Guys, look, you're, you're done. Okay, let, let me do my thing. And Elijah prayed two sentences and boom, fire from heaven comes down and and exploded in front of the people. Ahab's prophets of Baal, they were exposed in front of the crowd. They were posers. They were imposters. And Elijah ordered the people to kill those false prophets. And when he did so, he weakened Ahab's grip on power. And there had been a drought in Israel for three years And at that almost exact same time that that happened, Elijah prayed. and He began asking God to bring rain on his country. And suddenly, out of nowhere, it began to grow dark as clouds began to form in the sky. And Ahab, this corrupt king, he got in his chariot and he began racing back to his palace in another place called Jezreel. And look at the very, very end of chapter 18, verse 45. We're going to kind of skip the chapter break. We're going to go right to the chapter 19. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Now look at verse 46. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It's about 15 miles. So he was running and he actually beats the chariot to the palace. It's incredible. Look at verse 9, chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel, his queen, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. And so Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, we're going to cut your head off. <laughs> Elijah was afraid. He'd already run 15 miles He ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom brush, basically a juniper tree, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. Wow. Wow. You know, One day earlier, he was strong. He was confident. Now he's afraid and fleeing for his life. He had already run 15 miles in the power of the Lord. Then he ran 80 miles to Beersheba, four hard days, but it wasn't enough. Then he went another day's journey out into the wilderness. We see the word wilderness in your Bible. They always mean the desert mountains, all right? And he just imagined Elijah just Sprawled out in the desert and just laid out under a tree. And he says, I've had enough, Lord. I can't do this anymore. I quit. I'm done. Put a fork in me. And I wonder if some of you here today might be saying the same thing. I've had enough, Lord, in the marriage, in, in in your family, your school, your team, your church, your job. You're so tired. You're just worn out. And you just want to quit. You're like, Lord, I've had enough. I've had enough. And then look what he says here: "Take my life. Wow. Now I've never been to that place, but I know a lot of people who have been. Have you ever been to that place in your life where you're completely exhausted, mind, body and spirit. You're like, Lord, I have nothing left. Everything seems hopeless. Everything seems so dark. Now I'm not a psychologist. But my official diagnosis is that Elijah has become depressed. You know, this is the leading cause of disability worldwide. 17 million adults in America are affected by major depression. And one of the major causes of depression, minor and major, is depletion, it's exhaustion. When we are depleted, We don't have the will, the stamina to face the stresses of life. And so I want you to remember an axiom today. And that is this, that depletion always leads to depression in some form or another. And so if you become depleted, you leave yourself nothing in reserve. You're gambling with your mental health a little bit because you're running the risk of becoming depressed. And this is where Elijah is. He's lost the will to live. He doesn't have the energy, the stamina to go on any further. And we have to make an important point here because none of us here have ever been as close to God as Elijah was. God audibly spoke to him. He was a prophet. God used him to do incredible miracles. And I, I could list them for you here, but we won't do that today. He saw God do supernatural things on a regular basis. I mean, he prayed and boom, fire fell from heaven, right? And he prayed again. It rained after three days of dr- years of drought. And after all that he had seen, all that he'd heard, all that he'd experienced, he's all alone Isolated himself and he wants to die. And so, even if someone like Elijah is vulnerable to depression, that means that none of us here are immune to it. And we're going to have ourselves, people we love, people we care about, who are going to fall into the throes of depression at some point in their life. And can I just tell you today, it's not a character flaw, it's not a weakness. Depression is a fact of life in this fallen world that we live in, that's in bondage to sin and death. And this world, it depletes us and it discourages us. And so all of us are going to have to face this to one degree or another at some time in our lives, especially in contemporary America. You might call America a depletion nation. Work, school, sports, clubbing, movies, games, streaming, there is something going on every moment. We Americans are addicted to cramming as many experiences as we possibly can into every day and every night. And we live on too little sleep. We wolf down fast food. We fuel up on coffee and energy drinks, sometimes even drugs. All these things trying to keep ourselves going. We battle these long days and these short nights. We deplete our bodies, our minds, and more importantly, our souls. We become irritable, short-tempered, easily distracted, unable to focus, and easily exhausted. And one day, like Elijah did, we have to pay the price because we've been taking energy out of our energy account, out of our reserves for so long, we become so depleted. We do not possess infinite reserves of energy. We have a responsibility, the Bible says, to be good stewards or good managers of our energy resources. And you might be sitting here this morning saying, Les, I... Man, y'all have been asking for, uh, you know, people to do things and help out with things. And in my home group right now, uh, those are our small groups, guys. Uh, We're talking about serving. I can't. I've got nothing left. I'm tapped out. I've got no energy left. If I do one more thing, I think I'm going to collapse. I want you to see that there is a cure for an energy crisis in your life. Number one is this is that your physical needs are vital to your spiritual health. The Bible says this over and over again in many different ways. We're going to talk about one way today. I remember back a few years ago, we had a sweet, sweet older couple in our church, Hugh and Margaret Dickey. And I would go over to their house every once in a while and visit them. And one day, we were just sitting there talking, and I asked Margaret, I said, I said, what time do you all get up this morning? She said, 4.30. I said, like, whoa, wait a minute. And they're like 90, 95 years old. I said, why are you all getting up at 4.30? I said, you know, you can sleep till 10. She said, we have to get up early enough to get, up all, to get all our naps in. <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> they would take two or three naps all day. <sighs> The CDC reports that one in three Americans are not getting enough sleep. It's two out of three if you're under the age of 60. Listen to this. Parents, only three out of every ten teenagers in America are getting the recommended eight hours of sleep a night. Only four out of ten college students get the recommended amount of sleep. And we are suffering through a mental health crisis like we've never seen before in America, especially our students. And there is a cause and effect relationship between the lack of rest and the lack of peace. Research was done at John Hopkins University. Seventy five percent of the people struggling with depression were also struggling with sleep. They were not getting enough sleep. So Elijah has pushed its body to its absolute limit. What's God going to do? Elijah, you need to pull yourself together. No, he's going to meet his needs for rest. Look at verse 5 and 6. He lays down under that tree and he falls asleep. And it says an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and just miraculously out of nowhere, there was bread and there was a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again, still exhausted. And the angel came back a second time and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. You see, one quick nap and one meal wasn't enough for him. God has allowed Elijah just to sleep and just recharge his batteries. We all need to get this message that your physical needs matter to God. It's so, so critical. Sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is to attend to replenish their physical body. And you're commanded by God to rest your body. In fact, this is so important. God made it one of his top 10, one of the 10 commandments. He he takes this so seriously. Look at this. Exodus 31 verse 15. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, not there should be, there must be. There must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. And anyone who does, not, who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. Wow. Wow. This is serious. The Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it throughout their generations as a covenant. You see, it's imperative to you and to me to be good stewards of our energy and renew and replenish our energy reserves. Now, we don't observe, you know, the, the regular Sabbath day on a Saturday like they did in those days. A lot of people do still. But what this means is the principle is you should take a day off, off every week. All right. You should withdraw weekly, take a day off, rest and replenish your body. If you want to operate at peak performance, number two, all right. And that is this, that God makes energy available to those who serve him. That is unexplainable. And this is the part I love. This is where it gets kind of exciting. All right. I really want you to see this today. I think this is so, so critical. This has made a huge difference in my life personally. Look at verse seven. The angel came a second time touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he ate and he drank, strengthened that by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Oreb, which is Mount Sinai and the guys from Egypt, not too far from there. Okay. Now, don't you wish you'd been there when the angel said to Elijah the journey is too much for you. He's like, wait, hey, wait, what journey? <laughs> you know, what journey are we talking about here? It's almost exactly 250 miles from where Elijah is right there at that time to Mount Sinai. And it is not an easy trip, ladies and gentlemen. The mountains are high. The desolation is absolute. And still to this day, one of the most remote regions on earth. And God is going to send Elijah on a wilderness journey, four days in, 40 days in the desert, just like Moses, just like Jesus. God wants to personally meet with him and kind of reorient his vision for his life. And for Elijah to make this journey alone in his physical condition is a miracle in and of itself. The only way that Elijah was able to do this was the way he was able to make that journey, that 15 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel by the power of God. Isaiah chapter 40 says this, even youths Shall faint and be weary, the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, mount up with wings as eagles, run and not be weary, they will walk and not be faint. You see, in the Bible, waiting is not a passive activity, like you're at a restaurant on a Friday night waiting for your reservation. The word Isaiah uses here for wait means to expect someone like, hey, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting on you. All right. It means you're actively expecting and depending on God to meet your life needs. And life boils down to one major, major axiom. Where do you believe your power comes from? You see, an eagle rises to great heights, but they barely move their wings. They really don't. Fly, per se, as they flap their wings very well, but they ride the updrafts in the mountains. And the body of an eagle is designed in such a way with those huge wings and the hollow bones to depend upon an unseen power, the updrafts in the mountains. You and I are also designed to depend upon an unseen power, the spirit of God. Lamentations 325 says, the Lord is good to those who depend on him. You see, all of us have to come to terms with the degree of our utter dependency on God for everything. Everything from God, nothing from me. We have to come to terms with that because you see, there's an undeniable link Between your energy in life, your energy output in life, and your dependency. And the most important thing about your life, by the way, is not how long you're on earth, but how much energy you put toward this earth in the time you have on it. And if we neglect our spiritual lives, we're not depending on the Lord. We miss out on the energy, the stamina that He provides like Paul said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.29, he said, "This is why I toil and struggle." He said because his amazing power and energy. He said it surges within me. Mm. Do me a favor. Take your Bible. Turn to Luke chapter twenty two now. I want you to see this in the life of Jesus as well. This principle of life in the life of Jesus. This is Jesus' last night on earth. All right, and he knows what's facing him. It's the cross. He knows he's going to die for the sins of mankind. The Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, God made flesh, but he is God, but he is made flesh. He has a mortal body. That's what we believe about Jesus. Jesus was God, the infinite God, but he came for a time and he lived in a mortal body. Jesus is God made flesh. And we see here in Luke chapter 22, look at verse 39. They've already had this last supper that they had. It says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. And he knelt down and he prayed. I don't know if you know this or not, but the typical posture in Jewish life for prayer was to stand with your hands open with your, and your eyes open, looking up to heaven. So every other time you read in your Bible that Jesus prayed, he would have been praying like this. This is the only time in your Bible that you see that Jesus kneeled to pray. He knelt to pray. Why? Because the weight of what he's facing. The cross is so great, but also because it's a sign of submission. He is submitting to his father's will. And he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. What does he mean by this cup? That's a figure of speech going all the way back to the book of Job with a cup of God's wrath. What he knows is this. He knows that God is going to pour out his wrath on sin. And he's going to be the one who's going to bear the wrath of God for you, for me, for all of us. He's going to bear the wrath of God. He's going to go to a cross. He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured. And then they're going to put the nails through his ankles and through his wrists. Why? Because of the fury of the wrath of God on your sin and mine. Jesus died for all of our sins. He was our substitute. And so the weight of this is bearing down on him so, so much. That's what it means when he says, Father, take this cup away from me. Lord, I don't want to endure all of your wrath for all the wrong things that all mankind has ever done. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. He says, Lord, whatever, I'm all in. I'm all in. Whatever you want to do, whatever you need to do, Lord, I'm all yours. I'm all in. But don't you know, he is so weary. He's so exhausted. His disciples, they're not having to endure as much as he is. They're asleep. A stone's throw away. We know that from a little bit later in the story. They're just exhausted, the Bible says, from sorrow. And yet Jesus must be as well. Look at verse 43. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I want you to see two words that are there in that sentence. All right. An angel of the Lord strengthened him. And that's that word you see there up on the screen. All right, and it means to restore, okay, or to or regain your stamina, to restore your energy, regain your stamina. So an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Jesus is is spent. He's about to collapse. He doesn't have the energy to go through what's going to be happening to him for the next twenty four hours. And yet here comes the Lord in His mercy, because God always miraculously provides for those who need Him. What does Jesus need at this point in His life? He needs stamina. He needs strength, and the Lord miraculously brings that to him. And look at that word anguish, because what did Jesus do with the energy, with the stamina that God miraculously gave him? The Bible says that in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly. What was he doing? He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for the strength to go through with what's going to happen to him. It's incredible to think about. By the way, that word, that word uh, anguish is where we get our word agony, all right? Or to agonize. There was a Greek god. Named Agon. And Agon had a statue. uh, The athletes might appreciate this. Agon had a statue in Olympia. That was next to Nike. The goddess of victory. But Agon was this big man. And he held uh, what equivalent to dumbbells. In his hands. All right, And it was uh, the god of competition. The spirit of competition. Was the god Agon. And so we get our word agonize. And so that's what's going on here. Jesus is agonizing. And Jesus, and Luke tells us that Jesus was sweating in this contest between his will and the will of God, between, between the devil and the God, between all that was going on. He was agonizing so much in this contest that he was sweating so profusely, the capillaries in his skin began to burst and, and blood was mixing with his sweat. That's the kind of agony that Jesus endured just before the cross and even greater agony. The Bible says he rose from prayer, went back to the disciples and he found them, found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. You know, when we're doing the will of God, we have to know there are going to be times of agony. But here's what we know. God miraculously provides for those who serve Him. And energy is one of those things, stamina, strength, one of those things that God gives to His people. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you and the portion you give will be determined the portion you receive in return. So I want us to conclude on this today. What's your vision for your life? When you think about Five years from now, 20 years from now, when you're going to look back on your life, what are you going to look back on? You want to say, I, I hope that I've lived a life where I've, where I've served that I've given and I've built and I've blessed. Or do you have this idea in your mind? I just want to accumulate as much as I can. And uh, you kind of hoard it together and hold it together. You see, Jesus both lived a life and told us to live a life casting a vision for living our lives in an outward direction. And I want you to see this, that the character of the Christian life is this, a person who pours themselves out. The construct of the Christian life is a life that overflows into the lives of others. And the confidence of the Christian life is this, no matter how much you pour out, you'll never run dry. You'll never run dry. Jesus went to the cross the next day, with incredible strength, incredible stamina. And there on that cross, he said remarkable things. Things like to his mother who was standing there, he said to her with nails in his wrists and his ankles after he'd been beaten so profusely, so cruelly. And said, mother, behold your son. And he pointed to his disciple, John. And he said to John, son, behold your mother. Even as he hung on that cross, he cared for his mother. And as they were mocking him and ridiculing him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mm. And then one of the thieves on one of the crosses next to him, there were two other men that were crucified that day. And one of the thieves said, when you go to your kingdom, will you remember me? He said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Such strength, such strength, under such duress, such agony. How is that even possible? God miraculously provides when people want to serve and give and bless and build. Absolutely, absolutely He does. God always miraculously provides. Let's bow our heads together this morning. We make that a habit here at FCC. Just take a moment to just quietly reflect on what the Spirit of God might be saying to our hearts. And so if you would, just bow your heads with me for just a moment. I just want to ask you to think about your vision for your life today. When you do think about, what's my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I doing the things that I do? Why am I depleting myself? Why am I running myself ragged? Is there a place in your life where you're depending on God? You're depending on him for everything. Starting with your salvation. You know, Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could simply go to Jesus in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin that I could never pay that penalty on my own. And Jesus, I put my faith and my trust on you. I depend on you. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be saved. And the Bible promises that when you depend on Jesus for your salvation, for your very life, that your eternal soul is saved and that you are set on a path to eternal life. Your sins are forgiven and you're given an access to all of heaven in this life and life to come life after your death. And so this morning, there may be some here that you say, Jesus, I do. I I, I believe you are the son of God. I put my faith and my trust in you. I depend on you today for everything. I depend on you to save my soul. But there are also some of us here today, we've done that. and But we've been living our lives just on our own steam, on our own energy. And we need to come to a place where we say, Lord Jesus, I want to begin to live my life depending on you in a very real way. And so that just means like reconstructing our lives and reorienting our lives and re-architecting our lives so that we have that time where we replenish ourselves, but also depending on him for the energy. And when God puts it in our heart to serve and to give and to do, that we just say, Lord, I need your energy. I need your strength. I need your stamina today to live our lives that way. Lord, I cannot do it on my own, but I do want to do it for you. And so, Lord, I just come to you and I appeal to you for that today. So let's just be quiet for a moment. I want to ask you just to talk to God for a couple of moments today about where you are. And then I'm going to pray for us. And we'll conclude our service today. Lord, I just want to come before you today on on behalf of that person who is on the verge of collapse. Father, that person who's here today, who's just spent. Father, I just ask that you would speak into their heart about their great need today, their great need for you And Father, we do need more of you in our lives today. And so we just ask, Lord, that you would just fill us to the fullest, Father, with every measure of your spirit, that we just might know you, walk with you, but also serve you and give and bless. And so, Father, I just pray that you'd strengthen our hands today to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen.